Let us pray. Lord, we ask that on this Easter Sunday, you would help us in the midst of all the happy family activities, that our minds would go to the really important things of life, and that we would find true joy. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus, amen. Friends, if you turn with me in your Bibles, you can find one. You'll find them uh, in the pew rack in front of you. If you can't see it, I'll read it out for you. It's Matthew chapter 28. Uh, Our theme for Easter has been this theme of coming alive, uh, changing a life. And so we're continuing that. We had Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and now, of course, Easter Sunday. And we're looking at Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through to 10. It will help if you have it open in front of you, uh, but as I say, I'll read it out for you so you'll be able to hear it from my voice too. So let's hear now the story of Easter. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like night lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he had risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The story goes that uh, Albert Einstein had uh, just won the Nobel Prize, and of course he would send a messenger, a courier came to give him the uh, good news that he'd won the Nobel Prize, he was staying in a hotel. But Albert Einstein uh, realized that he had no money to pay the courier who had just delivered this message to him that he won the Nobel Prize. So instead, Einstein wrote a one-sentence note on a piece of hotel notepaper saying to the courier, one day it will be worth something. And indeed, on October the 17th, 2017, it was sold for $1.6 million. It's quite a tip, isn't it? Not bad. It's fascinating, though, what Einstein wrote on that note. He said this, A calm and humble life will bring more happiness than the pursuit of success and the constant restlessness that comes with it. Let me say that again. A calm and humble life 
will bring more happiness than the pursuit of success and the constant restlessness that comes with it. Here's a man who's just won the Nobel Prize. And what he's saying is, that won't make you happy. What instead he recommends is a calm and humble life. Let me ask you this question this Easter Sunday morning. Are you happy? Are you happy? See, the great thing about being a Christian is that a Christian has a source not just of happiness, not just of temporary relief from the troubles and hassles of life, but has a source of expanding and indeed, yes, eternal, but experience right now, joy, great joy. See, what the Bible is telling us here is that everyone, everyone can have this kind of great joy when, there is a condition, when you see, truly see, you repent of your sins and believe, when you see, when you accept Jesus as the risen Jesus, when you see the risen Jesus. Everyone can have great joy when you see the risen Jesus. And the story tells us that in these three ways. There are, as it were, three characters in the story. There's the women, and they go throughout the story. Then there's this angel, this extraordinary, miraculous, angelic visitation from heaven, an angel. And then there is, of course, Jesus. So let's walk through the story. First, you have the women. The women are going to a funeral, they become afraid, but by the end they're amazed. I say they're going to a funeral because Matthew says they went to look at the tomb. And that's important detail because ancient Jewish tradition has it that you went to visit a tomb actually for days after the death. So they're going not expecting that he would be risen. They're going to pay their respects to the dead. They're going in funeral mode. Now, let me ask you this. Is that what your life is like? Is your life like a constant expectation that at the end of life there will be death? We all know it's true, don't we? As it said, the ultimate statistic is what? The ultimate statistic is one in one people die. So you build up your success at business, you build up your success at sports, you you look good, and yet every single one of us knows there is a ticking clock, and at the end of our days we will die. And it casts a shadow over everything. Is is that what your life's like? You're in funeral mode. Uh, Not right now, but you know it's going to come. You see, the resurrection can change all that. The resurrection means that there is not simply life after death, there is meaning to life now because there is life after death. Sometimes said that Christians are just hanging around waiting for pie in the sky. But no, 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 we also have steak on our plate now. 
There is life and meaning now because we know there is life beyond death. Therefore, there is meaning to our lives now. And the cross that we remembered on Good Friday and we celebrate today is not then merely a celebration, a remembrance of a horrible death. Why would millions of Christians celebrate Easter if that was all it was? A lot of people die horribly, I'm afraid to say. There were a lot of people who were crucified by the Romans. But the celebration of the cross is that even though you and I are sinners, even though you and I have done what is wrong, even though you and I have broken our own moral code, let alone God's law, even though you and I, therefore, because we've offended against the holy God, deserve nothing less than hell for all eternity, even though that is true because of the cross, And because of the empty tomb that declares the cross victorious, you and I, if we see Jesus, if we believe in Jesus, can know for sure that we're going to spend all eternity with him. And therefore, in this life now, we can have great joy. Now, is that you? Do you know that experience? It's on offer to you this morning. The women didn't have it when they began. Perhaps you don't have it yet. Perhaps you will by the end. We're told they were afraid. They were afraid of, uh, well, the earthquake, the empty tomb, the angel. There was a lot to be afraid of. But then let me ask you this. Are you afraid? Are you afraid that perhaps it's not true? That perhaps you come here and there's a lot of fanfare, we're going to sing the hallelujah chorus, and there's a lot of music and drums, and there's this preacher behind a pulpit with all these flowers that every time they're here always reminds me it's Easter because it makes my allergies go crazy. (laughs) And there's all this fanfare and stuff, and the church is saying, it's true, it's true, but are you afraid that actually it's not? They were afraid. I wonder whether they were afraid that uh, the body had been taken away. Happened a lot in the ancient world. Body snatchers. Graves are robbed for the treasures within. But then by the end they're amazed. Because of what the angel says, the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet now filled with great joy. Again, that is what is on offer to you this morning. To be filled, not just with the momentary happiness of the humility And a humble life and a calm life that Einstein talked about that does bring more happiness than the pursuit of success. Yes, but not just that. The great joy that whatever your circumstances, whatever kind of sickness you face, however, yes, indeed, sad and discouraged you come, become, you have nonetheless something to hang on to that is an objective, factual source of great joy, namely the risen Jesus. That's what they experienced at the end, and that's what I hope you will experience by the end this morning. So the women, the angel, here's this angel, an angel of great power. He gives them peace. He says, do not be afraid. He also gives them purpose. There's this violent earthquake. His appearance is like lightning and clothes as white as snow. It really strikes me, this story, how different it is from our understanding of human religion. 
I rather like the quotation by Helen Keller, who said one time that she feared that actually religion, in all its fanfare and liturgy and everything else, religion was too often man's despair at not finding God. But here is this something very, very different from human religion. This isn't something they are working up. It's not something they're expecting. It's something that happens. Something God does. And again, this morning, this is not something I can work up. You know, I cannot sit here and say, you know, if I'd only told that story, then these people would have believed. No. If I'd only had a perfect Midwestern accent, they would have all believed. No. If I'd only done this and that, I would have been able to persuade them with human rhetoric. No. The sad and difficult truth for a preacher is this. God often chooses to use majestically terrible sermons. Because it is the power of God. An angel appeared. They didn't conjure him up. He gives them great peace. Why? He is not here. He is risen. Come and see. And of course, this all relies upon the fact of the resurrection. Do you think the resurrection is a fact? Or do you think Christians have made it up down through the years? A lot of people do think Christians have just made it all up. It's an annual spring ritual like pagan festivals. Is that all that it is? Or was it something that actually happened? And how can you know? A lot of people will say today, you cannot possibly believe in the resurrection because we today, in our, in our contemporary, sophisticated life, know that people do not rise again from the dead. But they, then, poor simpletons, they were fooled. Science proves the resurrection could not have happened. This is a huge confusion of categories. Science cannot either disprove or prove the resurrection. In the same way that science cannot either prove or disprove whether Abraham Lincoln lived. It's not a scientific fact, it's a historical fact. And so so in order to wrestle with the reality of the resurrection, you must begin to understand that the claim is an historical claim. Like Abraham Lincoln, like Julius Caesar, like, yes, Jesus Christ. You know, there are no reputable historians today who think that Jesus did not exist. Oh, you can go to internet blogs and find people saying they do. But I, having studied history at some of the best universities, I would say, in the world, you know, Cambridge, Yale, not too bad. Wheaton's okay as well. Uh, But (laughs) but, but, historians, no, Jesus exists. There's only one person I ever came across of any kind of standing whatsoever who wrote a book in the 1960s in that decade of drug experimentation, who decided that the claim of the Christians that Jesus and the resurrection was actually a code for, wait for it, their experimentation with magic mushrooms. (laughs) Historians know he existed. You say, well, okay, he existed. What about his resurrection from the dead? There is good historical data. Let me give you one example of that. There's a man called Frank Morrison 
who started out investigating the claims of the historical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he began to analyze the evidence with the intention of writing a pamphlet to expose how ridiculous it was to believe in the resurrection. And that pamphlet was to be called Jesus, the last phase. In other words, no one is going to believe it anymore. And as he investigated the evidence more and more, he became convinced that it was actually true. Instead, he wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? There's huge historical evidence for the resurrection from the dead. Of course, it's a rather inconvenient truth. For if it happened, it indeed will change your life. You say, well, the New Testament is no historical evidence for it. It was written so long after that it took place. Not at all. Certainly, we do not know precisely when Matthew's gospel was written. For instance, the gospel we're looking at this morning. But we do know that it was written somewhere between as early as 20 years after these events or as late as 50 years after these events, somewhere in that range. In other words, it would be like someone at the end of the 20th century writing a history about the Vietnam War. Witnesses were still alive. They had seen these events. They were living. They'd been transformed. They, they were willing to die for what people today say was a lie. If you deny the resurrection, you have to come up with a better interpretation of the data. You say, oh, they were just hoping there'd be a resurrection. After all, didn't Jesus say he'd been raised again from the dead? But they didn't believe it. They came there, as it were, to a funeral. Why? Because the whole Greek and Roman world at the time did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. It believed in the immortality of the soul. The idea of a body being raised was absurd. And Jewish, well, the Jewish faith at the time, they did believe in the resurrection of the dead, but it would take place at the end of time. No, 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 no. Their problem was not that they were expecting that, you know, a dead person can just get up again, and that's the sort of thing that normally happens. They knew it was not the sort of thing that normally happens. That was their problem. What on earth has happened? What's going on? It was shocking. They spent the rest of their lives trying to figure out its implications, as you may well do too, I hope. And if you do trust the resurrection from the dead, you will have this peace that the angel gave when he said, do not be afraid, not because of any myth, not because of any wish fulfillment, because of the fact of the resurrection. And you'll have purpose as well. He said, go quickly and tell his disciples. They came, as it were, to a funeral, but now these women are missional. Are you lacking direction in your life? Purpose? You keep on reading the self-help books and you have the different ideas about how to organize your life for some particular purpose. But what is that purpose? And what does it matter if you're going to die anyway? He who dies with the most toys wins. But you're still dead. What does it matter? The answer is it does not matter unless, unless, glory be, he is risen. He is risen. And now there is shining on your light, on the path in front of you, all this meaning and purpose, all this glory. 
That's on offer for you today if you'll repent of your sins and believe. Peace, purpose, because of the power of his resurrection. And so we come from the women to the angel now to Jesus. They'd heard that the angel had said he was risen, but now they meet Jesus. They fall down in wonder, they worship, and then they go out as a witness. They fall down in wonder. They take hold of his feet. Jesus is risen. They've, they've seen the empty tomb. They've heard the angel say he's not here, but now they see him. And they're so overcome, they fall at his feet in wonder, in wonder, in wonder. Such is the experience of becoming a Christian. Such is the experience of being a Christian even when things are hard. Things can be hard for you as a Christian. Let me make no false promises. In fact, as Jesus says, to follow him, you must take up your cross and deny yourself. Yes, indeed. But even when things are hard, you have this objective fact that you can hold on to that gives glory and joy nonetheless. One such person who realized this was Harry Monroe. He was the second superintendent of Chicago's famous Pacific Garden Mission. He'd been released from jail, he'd been put there on a counterfeit charge, but he then came to Christ and he came out of jail and he never got over the joy of being a child of God. His friends nicknamed him, wait for it, Hallelujah Harry. Hallelujah Harry. Do you have that wonder? Jesus is risen, he is here by his spirit. You can spiritually see him this morning if you'll trust him. You can know him. You can have him in your heart by his spirit. You can be raised to new life so that when you go through physical death, you continue in new life in him because you're now in him and you have his spirit. They fall down in wonder. They worship him, verse 9. They were afraid and yet also had great joy, but now greeted by Jesus with the traditional greeting that literally means rejoice. They lose their fear and guilty chains and bow in wonder with upturned faces, radiant and filled with joy and simply worship. Why worship, you say? Does God need our praise? Is he insecure? Oh, C.S. Lewis put it, we praise what we enjoy because the praise completes the enjoyment. When you praise Jesus, when you praise God, you're expressing your joy in Him, and that completes the enjoyment. So you you have not only happiness, not only fear mixed with joy, but great, pure joy. And then they go out as a witness. They wonder, they worship, they go out as a witness. Verse 10, go and tell. Isn't this remarkable, friends? A time and a day when so many people are realizing that our culture has been awful to women, awful in business and at Hollywood. Here we have, 2,000 years ago, a text that shows us that Jesus chose as his first witnesses women. And not just any women. You know who was the first and primary witness? None other than Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, who would have, yes, seven demons thrown out of her. Well, I don't know exactly what that means. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I can tell you this. She was no Mother Teresa. She may have been a prostitute. It's possible. 
And yet it was Mary Magdalene that he chose as his primary witness. What that means is, my friend, that whatever you've done, thief, liar, hypocrite, self-righteous, whatever you've done, Mary Magdalene, he wants you to be his witness, to see him this morning. Will you receive Jesus? One of the great evangelists of the 20th century was a man called Bill Bright. He traveled the world telling students, college students, about Jesus. He estimated that in his experience, somewhere between 25 to 50% of people were ready to receive Christ if they were only asked. So let me ask you, will you receive Christ? He's on offer this morning. Through His Word, by His Spirit, as we preach the cross, you need only repent of your sins and trust Him, and He is yours. And you'll be raised to new life with Him and live with Him forever. And because you know that, now you'll have a mission, a purpose in your life, and great joy. Will you receive Him? Everyone can have great joy only when you see the risen Jesus. Pray with me. And in the quiet, as the uh, choir come back out and the musicians, we're going to sing a couple of songs to conclude that are about praise and completing our joy as we praise the one that we enjoy, as we have this momentary pause before we come to respond in song, would you now then receive Jesus? Again, this is not human religion. This is the power of God. It's not something I can make you do. It is only something God can do. But I, on the authority of the Bible, wish to offer to you the opportunity this morning to repent of your sins, trust Jesus, and come to new life. Would you ask Him to forgive your sins? Would you trust Him? Lord, I pray for all of us that uh, this morning you will grant us fresh joy, a sense of purpose as we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.